I'm about to spontaneously combust up here, so I'm going to take the jacket off. If that offends you, don't email. Um, <laughs> it is warm under these lights today, and it is summer in Jacksonville. So uh, our New Testament lesson for this morning is Ephesians 6. If you have a Bible available, you may turn there. We're reading from verses 1 through 4. We're in the context of Paul's household code in which he instructs families last week and now the relationship between children and parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your help. It is in your light, the light of your spirit, that we see light, that we have understanding. And in these very practical matters of the Christian home, we ask that you give us help for understanding what to do and how to live it out. We need strength and support from you. We ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. For all of us engaged in nurturing kids, we wish there was a magic formula, some set plan that you could follow that would ensure that your children are raised as mature and healthy adults, also who hold to the faith of their parents. Every parent I know has sought after in some way the holy grail, that one plan that is going to deliver their children to that place. But we quickly learn with the differences in personalities and temperaments, the failings that we have, the failings that our children have, that there is no silver bullet. There is no one magic set plan that secures our children's future. And it is in the absence of a set formula of this magic silver bullet that you have a great deal of advice. You have stacks of books, YouTube videos, and then loads of opinion and people who are more than willing to share those opinions with you about what you should be doing with your children. And many people find themselves discouraged and just simply not knowing what to do with what to, how to handle their kids. But perhaps overlooked, there are four short verses tucked away here at the end of Ephesians that have a tremendous amount of wisdom in them to let Christian parents know the right path, the way of Christian parenting that is not a magic silver bullet, that doesn't give you one set plan, but does offer tons of wisdom about the right way. And along with the book of Proverbs, it is train up a child in the way that they will go and they will not depart from it. And yes, there are exceptions to that always. And this sermon in no way is to induce guilt in those who have had that experience. But it is to discuss what that way is and what that is to look like amongst God's people. And so the primary question that we'll be answering this morning is what are the foundational elements that we need to build on in the Christian home? And there's three that we'll be looking at, but the first is simply this that we welcome our kids into the covenant community. You'll notice that Paul specifically addresses children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. It's difficult to express to you how unusual and radical this statement is, 
Last week, we mentioned that there were household codes written by Greek philosophers, and that they filled the Greco-Roman world, and they were addressed to the head of the household. The father received the address about how he was to construct his home. And we see something different inside of this Christian household code. We see that fathers are addressed. We see that wives are addressed. And we see that children are addressed. And that this is the Christian fundamental statement of equality that exists. Yes, there are various roles for children, for husbands and wives. But there is a fundamental equality. And children are counted as dignified members, participants in this covenant people of God. And one of the most important things that we can do as a church for your children is that we can treat them as participants and members of that family, that we relate to them in that way, that they're not second-class citizens until they hit 12 or 16 or 18 or wherever you want to draw the line, but we celebrate them from even before they're born, and then we welcome them to active participation in this church. Some people will dispute this and say, no, children are not part of the covenant family. Yes, they may have been that way in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, because yes, they received a commandment. And if you receive a commandment from God, you have a covenantal responsibility to Him. But Paul reissues that same command. And the children of Israel were part of the covenant family. They were immersed in that life. They were taught to be followers of Yahweh, the true God of Israel, Not simply in catechism classes, even though something like that did go on. But they were dunked into this life. They were drowned in it. They were taught what it meant to be an Israelite by traveling to Jerusalem, to worshiping with God's people, to saying the prayers, to discussing things with their parents. They were not dropped off in Canaan until they were 12. They were assumed to be part of this story. As Psalm 78 says, they were the next generation who were to place their hope in God. And yes, the story is not always even. It doesn't always work out. Not everyone who is an expected heir of the covenant takes up their faith and believes and matures. But friends, that doesn't spoil it for the rest of the lot that we treat them as Christian until they prove otherwise. And yes, we know that they need to convert, that they must confess faith in Jesus. But we also don't hold them to the standard of the Damascus Road. We don't say that every Christian child needs to become Saul of Tarsus and then convert to Paul. That the way of conversion for most covenant kids is very humble. In fact, oftentimes they don't remember the precise moment. They know that God converted them, that they were born evil and in sin, but they were grown, they were born into these tremendous privileges to hear the gospel from birth, to have parents who prayed for them, and they believe. And friends, that's the ideal. And it's perfectly fine when one walks away and then has the Saul moment of conversion. But we engage children in the covenant community in the hopes that they grow up professing and mature in that profession. That is our great desire, and that is God's design for us. And we can see clearly that God believes children have covenantal responsibilities to Him still in the New Testament. He commands them. He places a claim upon their lives that they must answer. Kara Powell and Chap Clark have written a very helpful book. They're psychologists slash sociologists who are studying 
the exodus of children from the church when they mature and go off to college. The book is titled Sticky Faith, and this is the question that they're studying. What is the difference between Christian kids who stick to their faith through and after college from those kids who grow up in the same churches and do not stick to their faith? That's the question that they're looking at. One of their major conclusions is this. Listen carefully to it. I'll read it. We haven't found the silver bullet, but the closest our research has come to that definitive silver bullet is this. For high school and college students, there is a relationship between attendance at church-wide worship services and a faith that sticks. All the research they did, thousands upon thousands of interviews and phone interviews and surveys taken, one of the final conclusions about a faith that sticks for children who grow up in the church is tightly connected and tied to whether those children were meaningful participants in the life of the body. Were they relegated to the youth ministry and told when they come back from college that then they can maybe really be meaningful participants in the church? Or from their youngest days, were they always integrated? This is what the two researchers were pointing to. Were they part of the church's actual life? Were they learning with the adults? Were they serving with the adults? And especially, were they worshiping with the adults? The children are formed by mimicking what they watch around them. And that those kids who continue to profess their faith and grow in their faith into adulthood attribute it to that participation. Now, if you've ever asked the question, why does Christ Church do things the way that they do it, that is why. That conclusion came crashing home to me about a decade ago, and it seemed very important. And a few years ago, when we began making ch changes inside of our children's ministry, there was an objection that I heard from, from several people, and they said, well, Chuck, we're trying to regrow our children's ministry, and you're making the changes where only three to six-year-olds go out to children's worship, and you're going to expect that new people come in and they're going to come in and see that, and they're simply going to go somewhere else. You want too much. And for many people in our culture, that is too much. What they ask from the church is that their children have some mild version of Disney World on Sunday morning and to keep them out of their hair. Parents want three hours off, and I understand that completely. But friends, there's also a better way to nurture and raise them in faith. And that better way is to involve them in the covenant community so that they grow up believing, that they learn what the Apostles' Creed is before they even know the title of it, that they learn what it is to confess sins because they see you do it over and over and over, that humility in front of God is a virtue simply by watching it being practiced. There's all kinds of things that go on in the formation of a child as they participate in a church's worship. In those first several months while we were making the changes, it is remarkable because it's not every family that you want to attract as you establish a new culture. And many of you will remember the Payne family. They had to move uh, rather abruptly and because they were relocated because of work, but they came in May, uh, shortly after I arrived here in March, and they came up to me, and you'll remember um, that month, it was probably one of the worst months on record at Christ Church. 
We had just planted a church. Tons of people were on vacation, and the cupboard was fairly bare. And uh, so I got up to preach, and it was fairly sparse in here that day, and I could see this one new family sitting in the back right corner. And I was thinking, why did they come today? That's so painful. (laughs) They're certainly never returned. And then the next week, they were back with their five kids, and they were back the next week, and then they sat down with me, and they said, Chuck, we know things are not where you want them to be right now, but we see what you're valuing and what's important to the church, and that encourages us. And friends, that is the way that you build a children's ministry, and that's the way that we construct things at the church. We do it well, we build it, and then trust that God will bear the fruit through it. And involving kids in the covenant community, not simply offering them cotton candy and fun, giving them a dense faith that allows them to live inside of a secular culture, this is what is incumbent upon us. And this is the chief thing that the church as an institution can do for you as a family, is we can deliver that. We can deliver that participation. And so this is the first foundational building block. The second, as parents, and especially fathers, dads, you're in for another rough go this week, we must not exasperate our kids. Look what Paul says in verse 4, fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger. By way of inclusion, this involves both parents, but it's specifically addressed to fathers. And so it's important for us to submit ourselves to that and to listen to it. Because as our kids have responsibilities to us, that God places a claim upon their lives that they are to honor their their parents, their father and their mother, in the Lord, that they are to render their obedience to their parents and to listen to them equally. Parents are to care for their children and not provoke them, that we must listen to that claim that God places upon our lives, that we are not to be overly harsh, that we are not to ride them into the ground, that we are not to provoke them to anger. But how does it primarily happen? And this is just very practically. It's obviously humbling to speak on this because what parent has not provoked their child? What parent has not gotten frustrated with their child's behavior and what they're doing? What parent has not been hard uh, or tired and in a sinful moment lashed out at their children? But it is those moments that oftentimes can be very defining And we receive a command from God not to provoke. And I think the ways that provoking typically happens, provoking to anger, is with harsh criticism. Where perhaps we've become so frustrated with the child that we move from patience to a rebuke that has moved too far into our own anger. And we end up creating anger in them. There's also guilt-ridden manipulation. It's another clever way that's similar to anger about getting a child to do what you want them to do. And so we can weigh them down with guilt and manipulate them. And in the end, it bears bad fruit. There can be unexplained strictness. That is, rules that are never, we never understand the motivation behind the rules. Our parents simply put down the law and we're told we will do certain things and we won't do others. There can be heavy-handed discipline as well that moves into the realm of abuse. 
that these are the types of things that provoke anger. And as a Christian parent, one of the things that God will do to sanctify you is give you those children and those testing, trying moments. And the question for us is, do we just hold out hope for the day that they're finally gone? Or do we accept God's invitation to sanctify us through our children? As your marriage can be a way of sanctification, so will your parenting. And God is inviting you. And will you take the invitation that God wants me to grow in patience and gentleness, to learn how to nurture my children and care for their souls? And so parents, especially fathers, must learn not to exasperate. The third and final major building block that we find here in Ephesians 6 is that as parents, and especially fathers again, we must nurture our kids spiritually. If you look in verse 4, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. This word, these words that are strung together here in the English are a source of controversy in the commentaries. Because bring them up has, is the same word that you find in verse 29, where the husband is told to nourish his wife. And so fathers are instructed here to nourish children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. To nurture them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Calvin translates this in his commentary, let them be fondly cherished capturing some of the meaning of it. And we saw earlier in Ephesians 5 that this nurturing is a self-sacrificial nurturing where we're seeking the good of the other person and their flourishing. And yes, that good that we're seeking does not always comport with their immediate desires, but we have a long-term plan for them and where we want them to be. And friends, this is the goal of the Christian parent is to lead their child into those green pastures where they will flourish to nurture them into that. And here we see that parental authority is not abusive, and parental authority is also not passive. But parental authority involves an intentionality, that Christian parents have an intentionality about nurturing and growing their kids before the Lord, that they inherit this faith that will grow into maturity. Christian Smith, another sociologist at the University of Notre Dame, done a tremendous amount of study on the life of American teenagers, particularly in their spirituality. The book is called Soul Searching. Listen to what he writes. It says, most teenagers and their parents may not realize it, but a lot of research in the sociology of religion suggests that the most important social influence in shaping young people's religious lives is the religious life modeled and taught to them by their parents. That their primary teachers are not in Sunday school, as wonderful as the Sunday school instruction may be. That the primary teachers are not even in the school, as good or bad as that instruction and influence may be that the primary place our children inherit their faith from and their values and what they love is at home. And friends, we need to feel the weight of that responsibility, not in a crushing way where we're debilitated, but to know that that is what God asks us to take ownership for, 
That's what he asks us to step into. And there's two specific things that Paul then fills out that nurturing responsibility with, that we are to nurture them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And those capture two different things. Let's develop each of these. But the first is that we are to teach our kids the Christian faith. This is the word discipline. The word discipline in the original has a a very pregnant understanding of education, okay, is a full-blooded education that parents are to educate their children in the Christian faith, that we are to teach them. Powell and Clark in their research discovered some very intriguing numbers. They discovered that 12% of kids growing up in Christian homes have a regular dialogue with their mom about faith. 12% would say that they can have a regular dialogue with their mother about faith. That's uh, astronomically low. And then it gets worse when it comes to fathers. 5% of children growing up in Christian homes have an ongoing dialogue with their dad about Christian faith. And those parents very well may bring their children to church on Sundays, encourage them to go to youth groups, send them on mission trips, do all kinds of things in which they're trying to be beneficial But parents, we can't just do that. We can't outsource. We can't leave it into the hands of others to educate our children about the beliefs and values of Christianity. That the most primary thing that goes on is in your home. Nurturing those children, educating them, teaching them. And this is where the Reformed tradition has always been so strong in developing catechisms, teaching people how to instruct young children. The backbone of those catechisms has always been the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed. Those are the things that we emphasize as a church with our kids as we're trying to form them. And we're trying to assist you in doing that. But those are the things that need to be done at home. Some people immediately when they hear this say, well, I don't know where to start, Chuck. I don't have a theology degree like you. You know, (laughs) after getting that theology degree and spending all those hours of studying, I never had any instruction about what it meant to be a Christian parent. They don't teach you that in seminary. I'm studying Greek verbs and junk like that, okay? They don't show you how to do it. And suddenly we began into the baby-making industry, and here I was needing to teach these kids, and what was I going to do? I felt like a fool. If you feel that way, you're not the only one. It's okay. My mentor, Sandy Wilson, was uh, in his young 20s, and he was converting to Christianity. He'd gotten interested but he wasn't quite there, but his wife had, had egged him on into joining the church, and he, he sat down with the application to join the church, and it said, be prepared to share your testimony with the elders. And so he was sitting at the kitchen table, and he looked at his wife, Allison, and he said, I don't have a testimony. <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to say. And she looked at him, and she said, well, you better get one. And she walked out of the room, <laughs> and he converted. <laughs> Right there. He had to get one. That's what I'm telling you as parents, too. If you don't know what you're doing with your kids, get it. Go get it. Don't be too proud to ask. Talk to people who've done it. Pick up resources. Find guides. Get books. Do whatever you have to do. 
More important than saving for your children's college education, this is what you need to be doing. This secures their future more than anything else. This gives them long life in the land. That is in God's renewed land, renewed earth, where he makes all things right. That's the investment you need to be making. Just like you make financial investments in their future, make this spiritual investment. Take it seriously. And dads, in particular, let me say something to you. Don't leave this to your wife. If you do that, particularly your sons will grow up thinking that faith is women's work. That's what happens. That's what the research shows. If dad just sits there passively and says, yep, let's just go to church, kids don't take it seriously. You have to engage. The second piece of this instruction that goes on is that we must teach our kids Christian character. Talking about discipline now, Paul uses the word instruction, that we are to nurture them in the instruction of the Lord. And this has more to do with the moral development, the moral fiber of the person. And so we're not just concerned with arranging their mental furniture. We do that. We educate them in the basics of Christianity. But we also are going to be shaping their character. There's a spiritual formation to this. It involves what they love, and it is what they love that feeds their virtues and characters. This means that as parents, you need to be actively shaping your child's behavior. We have to be thinking of that behavior like a garden, and we have to ask the question, how do we cultivate it? At different seasons and in different points of life, you're going to be cultivating different parts of the garden, and there will be certain days where you decide to ignore certain corners because you just can't get there. You can't take it all on at once, but you're going to focus on this. And I'm learning through, the own tra- through my own transitions as a parent that, yes, it's very demanding. It's challenging. It requires prayer. It requires focus. It requires attention, and you need God's help in it. And in that way, it is one of the greatest discipling mechanisms that God gives to me personally and to other parents in the room. But this is also where many parents struggle because it is so difficult. We come up short, and I'll share with you why I think we often come up short when it comes to shaping our kids and their behaviors What is easiest is to focus on our children's external performance. We give our children the rules, and they're actually the right rules for the most part. We tell them what we want them to do. But where we come up short is we often don't get into the motivational element. We give them what, but we don't tell them why. And so we tell them the commands of God, but we forget to give them the gospel of God. We tell them that they are to honor their father and their mother, but we forget that the Ten Commandments begins with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. So we forget the motivation as to why they are to render obedience to their parents. We tell them not to have sex before they're married, but we never explain why. We never talk about the destruction that will begin, about how their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We never get into the motivations of it. 
Our kids need to understand how their obedience fits into God's big plan, into this new society that he's working out here in the book of Ephesians, where he's uniting all things in heaven and on earth. And people will say, but Chuck, a child can't understand that. And my answer is always uniform. I don't care. Begin talking to them about it before they understand it. And then let them surprise you one day when you're listening to them praying and they begin to pray about those things that you have said over and over and over. One of my sons thought he had lost his stuffed animal. And he looked at me crying and he asked if Blue Bear was going to be in God's new heavens and earth when he got his new body. And I thought to myself, he has, more, he has better theology And so many people in the Christian church, because he doesn't think heaven is just going to be playing the flute on the cloud, okay? He knows that he's getting a new body raised from the dead, and I had no clue he got all that. Now, he was worried about Blueberry, and we took care of that, all right? But friends, children can teach you all kinds of things, and they will absorb like a sponge, and you just tell them over and over and over. You start talking to them about the motivations before they can get it. And when it comes to sexuality, my advice to you is just get on this early. Explaining it to them. That this is extremely important. And there are practical things that parents are really struggling with today. Where we have to put down firm rules. And people decide to put those rules in different places. But I'll give you one very practical example And this is not to bind anyone's conscience about the rules that they apply. In the Colson family, one of the discussions that we've had to have this year was on cell phone usage for preteens. This is the most common question that I get from parents today of teenagers, is what should we do about cell phones? My children, in their respective grades, going into seventh and going into sixth, are one of two children in each grade who don't have a cell phone. Okay? This is like being circumcised in the Old Covenant, okay? You, <laughs> you stand out, except it's a little more apparent, okay? Um, they don't have cell phones, and, and they know it. And so when you stick out like that, you have to have conversations with that, why don't I have a cell phone? You know, why, why haven't you given me that? And so we've had to have pretty arduous, difficult, long conversations about why right now Mom and dad don't want that for you. And to explain why. That the average 24-year-old today has the social maturity of a 17-year-old did in 1983. This is just the studies. And one of the large reasons is because of the social technology that exists. And that children no longer know how to interact with adults and talk to them because their faces are always buried in screens. And then with the pornography academic, where children are being exposed to pornography at 11 years of age, oftentimes accidentally, because it suits the pornography industry to hook them early, and they are aggressive about it, and if you think they're looking for the welfare of your family, you're a fool. And friends, there will be a day where I have to release my children into the world to handle those temptations on their own. But right now, I'm trying to gradually release that control and control some things while I can while I teach them how to use computers well. That as they, as they work on a computer, that they render their obedience to God and offer themselves to Him and don't use other people on screens for their own satisfaction and pleasure. That's my role as their parent. 
That's my role as the father in the situation. And so work it out as you may. But we need to be explaining to our children, perhaps long before they can understand all the repercussions as to why. Why God's command is good. Why I should listen to mom and dad. Why mom and dad have wisdom that will protect me. And why they'll delight in it. Friends, parenting is one of the largest claims of God that he places upon us. It can be heavy. It can be guilt-inducing. And no doubt, I have offended half the room here at some point today. The goal for us is to listen carefully to the responsibilities God gives us. And then to go into that garden of our families and to nurture it. And to ask ourselves hard questions. To self-correct when we need to self-correct because no one does this perfectly. Remember, there is no silver bullet. But what we have is some general guidance here that we want to go in this way. And so friends, take it up. Take up that way. Remember that the entire book of Ephesians is about God reconciling heaven and earth. And then he steps down and he reconciles himself to man. And then he reconciles Jew to Gentile. He reconciles husband to wife. And he's reconciling parents to children. And leading you in the way of flourishing. This is what he wants for you. Take him up on it. Let's pray. Father, we need your help uh, with these things. These responsibilities are heavy, and we've all failed in carrying them well different times and different places. Strengthen us in your spirit, and Lord, we surrender our children to you as well, and we ask that you would bless them. May they delight in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. May they find it good, and may they grow into mature faith loving you and serving you all their days. That is our deepest desire for them. And so watch over us as a church. Guide us into green pasture where we flourish. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.